We come in this message to the exciting story of the very first Christian convert in Europe. I don't know if you ever think about that kind of thing very often, but just pause for a moment and think about the very first believer in Jesus in Europe, as far as we know. The story is found in Acts chapter 16, so turn there with me. Acts chapter 16, and follow along as I read verses 8 through 15. We read, So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. What a beautiful picture of the salvation of a dear woman. To borrow an expression from someone else, this was a truly liberated woman. At the moment she placed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment the Lord opened her heart and she believed, she was instantly liberated, instantly freed from the penalty of sin. Contrast that with how liberation is defined today by many women in our society. Sheila Cornyn, who was one of the feminist movement's most respected leaders and spokeswomen, said this, quote, Since marriage constitutes slavery for women, it is clear that the women's movement must concentrate on attacking marriage, end quote. A past issue of the National Organization for Women, Times, contained this quote. The simple fact is every woman must be willing to be recognized as a lesbian to be fully feminine, end quote. So that's what we've come to. But it's a far cry from this fully feminine and fully liberated woman named Lydia. Let's back up to get a running start on this story In verses 6 through 10, Luke tells us about a series of events that led Paul and his missionary team to go to Europe. They tried to preach the word in Asia, but they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. So they tried to go to Bithynia, but again, the Spirit didn't permit them. Eventually, they had gone as far west as they could go, and they were in the seaport city of Troas. It was there in Troas the Lord gave Paul a vision of a man of Macedonia pleading for the team to come over to Macedonia. 
So the next morning they set sail for Europe. That brings us to verse 11 where we read, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And Dr. Luke means a Roman colony. The Roman Empire had placed key cities in all of their districts, Roman colonies, miniature Romes, if you will, and Philippi was that city. And we were staying in that city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, that would be Saturday, we went out of the city to the riverside. Why did Paul go there? Because if you know his pattern of ministry in the book of Acts, he always started with the Jew first, so he looked for a gathering of Jews. He would go to the synagogue and begin to present Jesus as the Messiah. Well, there was no synagogue here, but he found a group of Jewish ladies, found out about them having prayer on Saturday Sabbath, and so he went to join them. And Dr. Luke says, we went out of the city of the riverside where prayer was customarily made. We sat down and spoke to the women who met there. So we see from these verses that there was no synagogue in the city of Philippi or else Paul and his company would have gone there first. And the fact that there was no synagogue meant that the Jewish population in Philippi was very limited because only 10 Jewish males were required in a city or a community for a synagogue. So that probably indicates there are less than 10 Jewish males in all of Philippi. So rather than going to a synagogue, the four missionaries went down to the riverside where there was a regular Sabbath prayer meeting. How did they know about this Saturday prayer meeting? Well, there is ample evidence, and time won't allow us to go into it, there is ample evidence to point to at least the possibility that Luke was from the city of Philippi. And therefore, he would have known about this weekly prayer meeting of Jewish women. As they went there, as Paul and his team went there, I can't help but believe that Paul was looking for the man he had seen in the vision. Remember what prompted them to go there. This man saying, come over here and help us. So Paul was probably looking for this man, but there were no men present at the prayer meeting. So Paul spoke to the women. Just as a side note on that point, contrary to what a lot of people say about Paul, which could not be supported biblically, he was not a male chauvinist. He has been unfairly labeled such. But he gladly spoke to these women. And verse 14 tells us, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. That's really a technical phrase. It means more than just she was one who worshipped God. It's, it was the Jewish way of referring to a Gentile proselyte. That is, a, a, a Gentile man or woman who had become a worshipper of the true God rather than an idolater or a polytheist who worshipped many gods, all of the Roman gods. This was a worshipper of God. So what that means is Lydia evidently was a Gentile who knew that the true God of the universe was the God of Israel and she came to believe in the one true God and became a worshipper of God. She was a proselyte to Judaism. She was a worshiper of God. So there were these Jewish women gathered there, and among them this Gentile woman, at least one, Lydia, and her heart already had been a heart wanting to know the true God. That's why she converted to Judaism and came to believe in the true God of Israel. But that wasn't all because Luke tells us here, the Lord opened her heart 
to heed the things spoken by Paul. Beloved, this is so remarkable. If you just stop to consider what this is saying. Lydia was a wealthy woman from a faraway town called Thyatira, but the Lord had brought her all the way to Philippi. Probably she came there for her business, but that's not the real reason she was there, at least from a divine standpoint. The Lord brought her there to hear the gospel. So Paul shared the gospel with her. In fact, the word spoken here, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, doesn't mean to give a sermon. Paul simply conversed with her about the claims of Jesus of Nazareth, and God had her ready to hear. You know, the question is often asked, and sometimes genuinely, sometimes it's sort of a straw man that people will throw up in, in, as an, uh, you know, a way to object to the gospel, object to Christianity, object to Scripture. But the question is often asked, what about those who have never heard the gospel? Well, this passage, as well as many others that we see in the book of Acts, in a sense answers that question. If someone has a genuinely seeking heart, God will do whatever is necessary to get the message to that person. We see this in the life of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, who came all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem because evidently something stirred his heart toward God, but he didn't find his answers in Jerusalem. All he found was religion. So he took off back to Ethiopia, and on the way, the Lord miraculously brought the gospel to him. We see the same thing in the life of Cornelius in chapter 10, which we'll look at later, where God has to, it's almost a humorous account, where God has to move heaven and earth just to get Peter to go take the gospel to Cornelius. But God got it there. And now we see the same thing in the life of Lydia. God led, think about this, God led Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke from Asia to Europe to this one seeking lady. Think about that. God prevented Paul and his team from preaching all throughout ancient Asia Minor. We we saw last week how they were blocked here, blocked there, because God wanted them in Europe. God wanted them in Philippi. God led Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke to this one seeking lady. By the way, this is a great illustration of the fact That again, contrary to what some people try to say about God or about Christianity or about Scripture, this is is a great illustration of the fact that women are not second-class citizens in God's eyes. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Equal spiritual privilege and standing, men and women. Women are not second-class citizens in God's eyes. At the end of Romans 16, Paul mentions 26 people who worked with him in the gospel, and eight of them were women. Eight co-laborers were women. This is also a beautiful illustration of the fact that God is not prejudiced against the wealthy. Lydia was a wealthy woman. There's very little doubt about that as evidenced by the fact that she was a seller of purple. A purple merchant in that day made a lot of money. It was a very difficult business to get into, and the very few who could get into it made a lot of money. This was a, you want to use a contemporary expression? This was a successful businesswoman. But her wealth was irrelevant to the Lord, either for good or bad. didn't matter. 
The end of verse 14 says, The Lord opened her heart. What a wonderful expression of the fact that God is sovereign in salvation. It's not the only time that Dr. Luke emphasizes this point. If you back up just a couple pages to Acts 13, you'll read in verse 48 a similar expression. It says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. Now watch this phrase. And as many as has been appointed to eternal life believed. God is sovereign in the work of salvation. He opens the hearts of men and women. It's not our cleverness. It's not our persuasiveness. It's not our techniques. It's not our methods. It's God's sovereign work in the human heart, which is exactly what Luke says in Acts 16 about Lydia. The Lord opened her heart. And then back in Acts 16, we read in verse 15, and when she and her household were baptized, so they also responded to the gospel. We'll come back to this thought in just a moment. But when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Lydia had such an impact on her household that they also came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were all baptized with her. The the word household here would, would refer to servants, possibly even youths. All those in her circle of influence also received Christ. And I want you to notice something here. Notice that it was, it was just assumed. It was just assumed that they would, they, would, they would all be baptized if they had become believers. This is the New Testament assumption. If you really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be baptized to declare your devotion to him. So that's what they did. Now, why is this sort of just the, the New Testament assumption? I want to take a little time to develop this because it's, it's so very important in our day and age especially. Some of you may be even asking, well, you know, where did, this, where, did, where did this idea of baptism come from anyway? How did it originate? Some wrongly assume, well, it must have just started with John the baptizer. That's where it all began. No, that's not where it all began. You are aware of the fact that God chose the Jewish people to be his holy people, his chosen people. And if a Gentile wanted to become a part of the people of God, then he had to become a proselyte, as I mentioned earlier. And the system of proselyte induction into the nation of Israel had three parts to it. Milah, Tebilah, and Korban. Three steps, three parts. First was Milah. That was circumcision. All Gentile men who wanted to be a part of the people of God had to be circumcised regardless of their age. This was an act to show that they realized, that they were acknowledging that they were sinful at the level of their very nature. By this act, the Gentile man admitted his root sinfulness. And then the second step was tebilah. Tebilah was immersion into water to depict the willingness of the Gentile to die to his Gentile world, to die to his Gentile ways, and his desire to be given new resurrection life. That's where baptism started. And then there was the third phase, korban. This step involved an animal sacrifice. 
And when the Gentile offered the sacrifice, the blood of the animal would be sprinkled on him to symbolize cleansing from sin. So as far as we can tell, that was really the beginning of baptism. It was phase two of becoming a Jewish proselyte. As you know, John the baptizer baptizer picked up on that. But he even went further. He went far beyond that because he demanded that Jews be baptized. Not just Gentiles. That Jews be baptized as an admission of their need to die and as an indication of repentance from sin. Then Jesus continued this practice in his ministry with the added dimension that baptism indicates not only death to self, but also a desire to follow him. So that's sort of the background to baptism. And maybe you're thinking as you hear that, hold it, then, then maybe baptism is just something made up by men with no approval from God. If that is your thinking, consult Matthew 21, 25, where Jesus indicates that baptism is of heavenly origin. And in fact, in Luke 7, 30, this verse has really, really hit me through the years. Luke 7, in Luke 7, 30, the Holy Spirit refers to baptism as, here's the direct quote, God's purpose for man. Is that a strong statement or not? God's purpose for man. In fact, Jesus was even baptized as the fulfillment of all righteousness, to use his own words. How did Jesus fulfill the righteousness of God? Well, we know how he did, by dying on the cross. So Jesus was baptized to symbolize the fact that one day he would die and be resurrected to newness of life. In Luke 12, 50, Jesus spoke of his death as a baptism which he must undergo. In Mark 10, 38, Jesus referred to his death as a baptism because, again, it's the perfect picture. Going backwards into the water, coming out, it's death and resurrection. So Jesus was baptized to symbolize the fact that one day he would die, be buried, and then resurrected to newness of life. Thus, Jesus placed a lot of importance on baptism. It's important to state that in our day and age because it just seems that in in Christianity at large that there are so many Christians who think, well, the only people who really place a lot of emphasis on baptism are the Baptists. You know, obviously, if you're Baptist, that's your name, so you you place a lot of emphasis on it. Jesus did. In his earthly ministry, It may surprise you to hear this. In his earthly ministry, he made sure that his disciples and followers were all baptized. In fact, John 4, 1 and 2 says, he even baptized more of the disciples than John the baptizer. My guess is most people, most Christians, would get that wrong if it were a quiz. Who baptized more people in the New Testament than anyone else? I guess as most people say, John the Baptist. No, Jesus did. Although John 4 says he didn't actually do the baptizing for obvious reasons because then people would think, oh, you got to have Jesus baptize you to make it real or something. But John 4 says Jesus baptized more disciples than John the baptizer. This was such a priority for the Lord Jesus that when he was about to ascend into heaven and leave the ministry to his disciples, he commanded them in the Great Commission to baptize all those who desire to be true disciples. 
Baptism was so important. Think about that. So important to Jesus Christ that in his final words to his disciples, he emphasized its priority for all those who placed their faith in him. Not surprisingly then, since baptism was that important to Jesus, the disciples took his words very seriously. Throughout the book of Acts, there are numerous passages that speak of the disciples baptizing those who repented and received Christ. It's in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, Acts 16, Acts 18, Acts 19. In two of those passages, Acts 2 and 10, Peter even commanded, commanded the new believers to be baptized. So all that to say that baptism is an important act of obedience as seen in the New Testament. In fact, after the day of Pentecost, there is not one record of an unbaptized believer found anywhere in the New Testament. Were there any? Maybe. Possibly. But there is no record of an unbaptized believer after the day of Pentecost. I personally think that this this failure to take baptism seriously by many Christians today is symptomatic of so many of the problems we see in the church today. Think about it. It shows that people aren't willing to take the Word of God seriously and obey it when it speaks clearly on a given subject. And if people aren't obedient to the simple command of baptism, then it shows that they'll sort of pick and choose what they want to obey in the rest of Scripture. But you don't see that problem in the early church. For example, in Acts chapter 2, Luke records that there were 3,000 converts on the day of Pentecost who were saved, baptized, and continued to walk with the Lord. How many were saved? 3,000. How many were baptized? 3,000. How many continued with the Lord? 3,000. And remember, to be baptized in the name of Jesus on that day in Jerusalem was to say that you were serious about being committed to the one who was recently murdered by your own leaders. No half-hearted converts would have been baptized. The price was too high. The decision was too serious. Now contrast that with what we often hear today. Today, we hear reports of evangelistic meetings that go something like this. We had 3,000 decisions, 84 baptisms, and 37 people continued to walk with the Lord. It's really different than what we read in Acts 2. You see, many people recognize the importance of baptism in Scripture. They see it in history, but they feel it's not that important for us today. Those who hold to this view fail to realize that in the Great Commission, Jesus gave instructions about how to make disciples of all the nations for all of time. In other words, the disciple-making process is the same in every culture and in every century. Disciples are made by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. This this is still true today in our century and our culture. Now, why is this such a big deal in Scripture? Why would we read here in Acts 16 that Luke would say, well, you know, the Lord opened her heart, she believed, and she was baptized. Why, Why such a big deal being made out of this? What's the purpose? The purpose of baptism as seen in the New Testament can be summed up in two words. Public identification. Public identification. In the New Testament, whenever someone turned to Christ from his or her sin, that individual made that decision public by being baptized. 
And you can see why this is important. Salvation is a heart transaction, is it not? It's an internal transaction. No one can really see it. It's something that happens just like here. The Lord opened her heart. It's something that happens in the heart. So to get it out or make it known, there needs to be something external. And that external thing in Scripture in the first century was always baptism. So baptism is, the, is for the purpose of identification with Christ. It's saying, now I belong to Jesus Christ. I have committed my life to him. But baptism is also a public identification with the people of God. When an individual identifies himself with Jesus Christ, he is also identifying himself with Christ's people. So baptism is not for salvation. It is because of salvation. Acts 2 illustrates this. Go back a few pages to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the famous passage used by the Church of Christ to try to promote baptismal regeneration. That is, baptism is what saves you. Baptism is necessary for salvation. But look at Acts 2.38. Now Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then of course, people will come out. See, there it is. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So how is this, this preposition being used here? The word for could be translated very justifiably because of. Be, let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the remission of sins. You say, is that really a valid usage? Well, it's exactly how Jesus used the, this exact same preposition in Matthew 12, 41. He said, the men of Nineveh repented, and then exact same Greek preposition, at or because of the preaching of Jonah. Exact same Greek preposition. And interestingly, we even use our English preposition for in this way. As an example, if, and we don't see many of these anymore today, it used to be you'd go into a post office and you'd see all these wanted posters. You know, wanted for bank robbery, wanted for mail fraud or whatever. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that this person is wanted so he can go out and commit a bank robbery? No. It means he's wanted because he's already committed a bank robbery. Wanted for bank robbery. Wanted because of bank robbery. And that's exactly how Peter is using the word here in verse 38. Repent. And we find out at the end of Luke's gospel from Jesus' own words that once there is repentance, there is forgiveness of sins. So the minute you repent, you're forgiven. Repent, so you're forgiven. And then let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of sins. So those who have received the saving grace of God should make that decision a public declaration by being baptized. Today, many other methods are used by many churches, denominations, altar calls, showing of hands, standing up in a crowd, some type of confession of faith. But listen, beloved, the method the Lord gave us is baptism. It's the Lord's method, which brings us to another question. Who should be baptized? The answer to that question is a logical and biblical extension of the previous issue. The answer is this. Who should be baptized? Those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior should be baptized. To be even more specific, all those and only those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior should be baptized. As I mentioned earlier, the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized believer. 
One of the first evidence of obedience in the Christian life ought to be baptism. Again, I, I personally believe one of the reasons why some Christians continually struggle in their walk with the Lord is because they've never taken this step of obedience. Baptism is for all believers, but baptism is also only for believers. Let me say this as clearly as I can. And I don't mean to be controversial. I'm not picking a fight with anyone or any church or any group, but the Bible knows absolutely nothing of baptizing babies. You cannot find one clear example in the Bible. Not one. Infant baptism is a man-made doctrine. The book of Acts makes it clear that only those who have personally received Christ should be baptized. And I will say this, in Acts 2 and 16, the offer to the household to be baptized, which is the passage that some try to use. Oh, see, the household, even the babies can be baptized. Well, it doesn't say babies, it says household. Pato baptists read babies into that, but it doesn't say that. But the offer to the household has the same condition it does for, the, for the, whoever the, it was being spoken to. That is, repent and believe. It's an offer to your whole house. Anybody in your household who can repent and believe, who's old enough to repent and believe, can be baptized. So only those who repent and believe are to be baptized. To do otherwise is to go contrary to the Bible's teaching and, far worse than that, possibly to give a false sense of security to those who are baptized as infants. I've lost count of the number of people I've talked with through the years about their standing with the Lord, their salvation, only to hear them say, yeah, I was baptized as a baby. That's it. In other words, I've checked that box. I'm good to go. Now let me deal with another question that some of you are probably thinking about related to this. What is the proper mode of baptism? Probably no other question about baptism has caused as much controversy as this one. But again, the written word of God must be our authority. So I'll say it very clearly, unapologetically, and without any reservation whatsoever, the baptism practiced by Jesus and the apostles was immersion. There are at least four lines of evidence that prove that conclusion. Number one, the Greek word baptizo which is used throughout the New Testament, means to immerse or to submerge. Now listen, there are other Greek words for sprinkling or pouring, but they are never used in the New Testament to refer to the act of baptism. Never. Actually, there are a couple different Greek words used in the New Testament for baptizing. There is baptizo, the most common, and bapto. Bapto is used four times, not very often, only four times, and it always means to dip into to dip into, to die, D-Y-E, like dyeing a piece of fabric. To dip into, to die. So it always means to submerge or immerse. The word baptizo is an intensive form of the word bapto, and it is even stronger in its meaning. And that is the word behind our English word baptize. This is such a controversial issue that sadly, even our translators weren't willing to take the heat, take the arrows over this, so they didn't translate the word baptizo for us. They just transliterated it. Said, we'll stay away from that and just say baptize. They took a, a Greek word and just made it an English word rather than translate what the word means. But the word baptizo is the word that's used many times in the New Testament, and it means to dip completely or to drown. The noun form of those two words is baptismas, 
which always in the book of Acts refers to a Christian being immersed in water. In fact, the two Greek verbs, baptizo and bapto, listen to this, are never, they are never used in the passive sense. In other words, water is never said to be baptized on someone, which is the case in sprinkling, pouring, dabbing, etc. Always someone is baptized into water. A second proof for this, the biblical examples of baptism show us that immersion was the practice of the New Testament. Matthew 3 records the fact that John the baptizer did his baptizing in the Jordan River. Listen, you don't need a river if you're just going to sprinkle or pour water on someone to baptize him. John 3.23 says, Now John also was baptizing in Aenon near Salim because, listen to this Holy Spirit-inspired statement, because there was much water there. Again, you don't need much water if you're just going to sprinkle or pour or dip. A third proof that, that immersion is the biblical practice. The truth that baptism illustrates shows us immersion was the practice of the New Testament. Colossians 2.12 and Romans 6.4 both refer to, here's the quote, being buried with Christ in baptism. Baptism is to depict the fact that at salvation, the believer is united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. When a person is taken back into the water, that symbolizes death to the old way of living. When he's brought up out of the water, it symbolizes newness of life. And the water symbolizes the cleansing we receive from the blood of Christ. And then a fourth proof is this. The historical record reveals the fact that immersion was indeed the practice of the early church. Beloved, it's impossible to read church history and not see that immersion was the practice of the church fathers. In fact, the great theologian John Calvin, who is at the heart of the Presbyterian church that sprinkles, said, and I quote, the word baptize means to immerse. It is certain that immersion was the practice of the early church, end quote. And God bless Calvin for being honest and straightforward with the truth. In 21st century America, the subject of baptism is often an, an area of great misunderstanding. There are so many traditions that become the basis for conflicting doctrines. The result is mass confusion over this issue, which is why I've taken so much time with it. As men insist upon offering all of their varied opinions, the confusion often turns to strife. God never intended such controversy. Let's, let's lay aside the confusion of conflicting traditions and return to the simple truth of Scripture. God's plan for each believer to, is for each believer to identify with Jesus Christ and his body being, by being baptized. It's exactly what Lydia did when she believed. And the members of her household who believed, it's what they did. Now some of you are probably saying, you know then, if this is the case, why are so many people who are involved in church, not baptized. Let me give you a quick list of the possible reasons. These are in no special order. Number one, ignorance. Maybe they just don't know what the Bible says on the subject. They've never really studied it. They, they've never been taught. A second possibility is indifference. There are people who just don't see baptism as that important. They never get around to it because it's not a priority. Maybe they don't want to bother coming back on Sunday night to participate, whatever. Just, it's not a big deal. Number three, a third possible reason is pride. 
people who wait a long time after, after conversion to be baptized often find it difficult to be baptized because then they have to admit they've been either disobedient if it's knowledgeable or just ignorant for a long time. And that's, that's, that's a humbling experience. Number four, hypocrisy. There are Christians, sadly, who are holding on to sin in their lives and therefore to make a public declaration of their desire to follow Christ would be nothing but hypocrisy. People would look at it and say, you've you got to be kidding me. What a joke. You're saying you're wanting to follow Christ with the way you're living? So they hold on to their sin instead of surrendering to Christ and obeying his lordship. And then there's a fifth possible reason. Maybe some who are involved in church and have never been baptized, it's because they're unregenerate. There are people involved in churches, but those people aren't necessarily regenerate. They, they don't know, everyone who's involved in church, you, you and I understand this, everyone who's involved in church doesn't automatically know the Lord. And if they don't really know the Lord, why would they bother being baptized to identify with him? But Lydia knew the Lord. The Lord opened her heart, and because she did, she publicly declared her devotion to the Lord through baptism. The man of Macedonia that Paul saw in his vision turned out to be a woman. In fact, the man of Macedonia that Paul saw in his vision turned out to be a woman of Thyatira named Lydia. She was from Lydia, I mean, she was from Thyatira named Lydia. She probably had a home there. She had a home here in Philippi as a wealthy woman. She had the, for whatever reason, going back and forth between the two places. And amazingly, God went to great lengths to reach her and her household. As I said earlier, the the story of Lydia's conversion sheds a lot of light on the often asked question, well, what about those who've never heard the gospel? Are they condemned? The answer is yes. Yes. They are condemned not because they have rejected the Jesus they've never heard of, but because they've rejected the light they do have and they choose not to respond to the light so that God would give them more light. But let me hasten to add this. If a man or woman will respond to the light that he or she has, as Lydia did, God will move heaven and earth to get that person more information to lead him or her to faith in Christ. This is a case in point. And so is Acts 10, which I referred to earlier. Turn there with me as we close the message because I want us to end on this note, just seeing God's heart for the lost and willingness to do whatever it takes to get the truth to the person whose heart will respond. Acts chapter 10. This is, we were looking in Acts 16, the spread of the gospel to Europe, Acts 10 is just as monumental because it's the spread of the gospel to Gentiles, from Jews to Gentiles. And so in Acts 10, we read this story, and I'm going to read quite a bit of it. Just follow along in your Bible. Verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. In other words, he's a Roman soldier stationed in Israel from Rome. Now think about God's sovereignty and orchestrating all this. He gets this man to go to Israel as a Roman soldier. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all, with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always, probably and also an indication that he was a Gentile proselyte who knew that the Jews, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people had the true God, the God of Israel. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. 
When he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now this is the easy part, amazingly. It's easier to get the non-Christian to do what he should do in this scenario than it is to get the Christian Peter to do what he needs to do, as you'll see. Because the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Beginning at 6 a.m., this would be noon. It's lunchtime. He became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven opened, an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But he said, Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. I've been kosher my whole life, devout Jew. And the voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times. And the object was taken up into heaven again. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the man who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So it takes three visions and the Spirit speaking to Peter to get him to go. Verse 21, Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by, the whole, by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Now skip down to verse 34. Peter finally goes, and Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And, and we are witnesses of all these things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed, that is, Jewish believers, were astonished. You mean that Gentiles can get saved? They couldn't believe it. Gentiles can be right with God? As many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Well, how did they know they were were just like them? Because they heard them speak with languages and magnify God. Well, they get the same thing we got in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. So they're equal with us? They're astonished at this. For they heard them speak in languages and magnify God. Then Peter answered, 
Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Well, obviously there's a lot to this story. But I just the, the point I want to emphasize is this. Here was a man who by God's grace responded to the light he had. He was from Rome, a Roman soldier, a polytheist, worshiping many gods, the gods of the Romans. But he responded to the truth and God did everything necessary to get him the saving truth about Jesus Christ. God gave him a vision, Peter three visions, to get the two of them together because God did it. God did it because God will always give more light to those who respond to the light they have. He will do whatever is necessary to get the truth to a genuinely seeking heart. In other words, no one, please hear this, beloved, no one will ever stand before God someday and say, God, I would have received your son if I had only known. That will never happen. The problem is not God getting the message to someone. The problem is the hardness of the human heart. But when God has cultivated the heart to genuinely seek him, he will do whatever is necessary to get the message to that person. Cornelius is a perfect example, and so is Lydia. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for teaching us by your word and just reminding us again of your heart for the lost, how you orchestrated things to get Lydia all the way to Philippi and get Paul and his three traveling partners, his co-workers to to Philippi to get the gospel to her. And now as we see here in Acts 10, how you moved heaven and earth as it were to get the gospel to Cornelius. Uh, what, a, what an exciting just insight into your heart for the lost and how far you will go, how much you are willing to do to get the gospel to anyone who will really respond, who really wants to know the truth. Remind us that we never have to fear the objections of unbelievers who say, oh yeah, but Christianity is so, so wrong, it's so unfair, because what about those who have never heard? We, we, don't have, we don't have to fear that concept, that idea whatsoever. You are good and gracious, and no one will ever be able to stand before you and say, well, I would have if I'd only known, but the problem is I just didn't know. That will never happen, because we see too much too much truth in your word related to your heart for the lost and how the problem is not with getting the truth to them, but the problem is in our hearts. The problem is that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So encourage us with the words that we have seen here in this, these texts that we've considered in this message. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.